Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, welcoming you to the third episode of Season 4 of the show dedicated to Alexander the Great. So far, we've talked about the Greeks, we've talked about the Persians, and we've touched a little bit on their issues with one another, but today we're really going to be getting into the heart of matters there. We're going to be talking about the Greco-Persian Wars, also known as the Persian Wars, and some of the consequences of those wars on both sides of the Aegean, as well as Persian meddlings in ancient Greece and vice versa after open hostilities had ended. We're also going to touch on our sources and the viewpoints of history, sort of why we discuss these events the ways that we do, just like a very little bit on that. Just wanted to highlight some of the things we have to be careful about when learning about history. Like with the Greek episode, I will include a link to a bunch of links with sources for you to to consult on your own at your own leisure. You know, if you want to not just take my word for it, dive into this on your own a little bit. Now, before we dive in, let's get a few programming reminders out of the way. If you're loving the show, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews, and be sure to hit up the socials. Follow the show on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High T-O Podcast. There we got memes for you. We got updates coming. We have context-free spoilers. And if you want to hit me up, you can slide on in the DMs there as well. Also, if you are so inclined, feel free to chat out the Patreon for two bonus episodes every month, two newsletters a month, and input at varying levels into future episodes and seasons of the show. As well as, like, you know, being the first to get bonus episodes with guests and stuff like that. Anyway, housekeeping, it's out of the way. Always takes less time than I think it's going to, but I still hate doing it. So let us talk about what we're here for, wars and all that jazz. As you may recall from last week's episode, Cyrus the Great, founder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, rapidly expanded the size and scope of his empire. In the course of this expansion, he conquered the kingdom of Lydia, which was ruled by the king Croesus. Now, old Croesus saw the encroachment of the Persians and got a little nervous, so he sought out the oracle of Delphi, who gave a cryptic prophecy that he interpreted as favorable. Basically, it was like, you're going to destroy a great empire. Did not know the empire he would destroy would be his own. So he decides to attack the Persians, seeks out the help from Spartans, who are at this time the preeminent power in Greece. Spartans don't show up. After conquering the Lydians, Cyrus has his eyes set upon the Ionian Greek colonies, and Herodotus, our old friend, tells us that he was visit that Cyrus was visited by a delegation of Spartans. And Cyrus found these mainland Greeks to be quite unlike those of Ionia, who he was a little familiar with. You know, he was like, these are prosperous people, they're doing their thing. He found the Spartans really weird. They had their long hair going on, they sported some red cloaks. And they were also, of course, very brusque and blunt. You know, that famous laconic demeanor now. Cyrus wasn't, he wasn't aware of that back then. So these Spartan ambassadors roll up. They tell the king, they're like, listen, you'd do well to leave the Ionian Greeks alone. If you did not, you'd have to answer the Spartans. And that's a problem he didn't want per the Spartans. So they just kind of leave it at that. They're like, leave the Ionians alone. If not, you're dealing with the Spartans. And the messengers apparently thought just that mention of the word Spartans would be enough to dissuade some random barbarian king. Now, Cyrus has said, you know, he takes a beat, he takes a step, okay? 
and he turns to a nearby attendant, apparently just like very amused with this whole situation, and goes, so tell me, who are the Spartans? Now, this might come as a bit of a shock given later developments, and especially given later propaganda, but Cyrus looked at these Spartans, who were quite obviously lovers of luxury, while the Persians at this time, you know, they're more hard travel people, poor, hard-riding, hard-traveling people, salt-of-the-earth types. And so he discounted the threat that such a seemingly soft people could pose. There's also, of course, if we want to go back even further, the whole Trojan War thing, which not necessarily the Persians themselves, but East versus West, Greeks versus the people that they considered to be from Asia, that sort of thing. So there's just a lot of animosity between these at least in the Greek point of view, the peoples of East and West. Despite these warnings, Cyrus reduced the Ionian Greeks to tribute-paying subjects of his empire with nothing more than the aforementioned warning from Sparta. But this would fester with the Greeks, and so when the Persians under Darius I began encroaching into Europe, marching across the Bosporus on a pontoon bridge, where the imperial army soon overran eastern Thrace and crossed the Danube on another pontoon bridge that was constructed this time by some of those Greek contingents within the Persian navy. The Persians began, you know, they're advancing into Europe. The Greeks are a little uneasy about it. And it's likely that this was a step to conquer Greece from the north incorporated into the empire. Not necessarily because Greece was anything special, but because, you know, the Persians were in this phase still set on expanding and growing their empire. So they get pretty far into what is now Ukraine, probably in 513 BCE as they're waging war on the Scythian. And they're doing pretty well. You know, eventually they outrun their supply lines and are forced to retreat only to be harassed by Scythians on their exit. The Scythians also encouraged the Greeks in the Persian Navy to revolt and to burn the bridge that allowed them to cross into this land. Greeks weren't going for it, stayed loyal. This is like, as we touched on in the Greek episode, various of the colonies in Poli that were part of the Persian Empire at this point, not like a united Greece. There was not and would not be a united Greece for some time. And so while there were some of the Greeks staying loyal, some surrounding Greek colonies in Poli did rise up and rebel against Persian rule. The Persians did crush these rebellions, but this incursion into Europe was valuable for both sides. For the Persians, it showed the need for a strong bridge bridgehead in Europe for conquest. Also, they established a satrapy in Thrace. And the Macedonian chain at this time medized or went over to the Persian side. Unclear if at this point they were formally part of the Persian Empire or like a vassal state junior partner type of thing. It's also a little bit unclear if what exactly the relationship is, if they're ever formally a satrapy for an extended time. More on that, we'll get into that a little bit more in a couple minutes. But these events lead into, uh, these events lead us to the Ionian Revolt, which really is what starts to kick off these Greco-Persian wars. So discontent in the Ionian Greek colonies was fanned by the tyrant Aristagoras, who was ruling in his father's stead because the pair had encouraged what ultimately proved to be an unsuccessful Persian expedition to Natsos in 500 BCE. So our guy Aristagoras is fearing the repercussions for this. 
And he encourages Miletus, which is the Ionian state he was in charge of, and the other Ionian cities to rebel. And he even goes to mainland Greece to try to rally some support for his cause. He goes to the Spartans, of course. They're like, nah, we're not really interested in getting involved in this. We're a land power. But the Athenians sent over 20 Tyremes and the Eritreans sent five. And with these ships incorporated into the Navy, you know, they're ready to rock a little bit. The Ionians start their offensive in 498 BCE, capturing and burning Sardis, which was capital of their satrapy. So it's a Persian city. This in turn inspired uprising in other Greek states along the Bosphorus and Hellespont, Cariah, and also in Cyprus. At which point, the Athenians and Eritreans, I guess, they are like, these rebels got in hand, they don't really need this, they've gotten more allies, let's go back. And they withdraw their boats, their ships, from the fleet. Unfortunately, and I think it might be fair to say that this is unfortunate for everybody in the long run, in the grand scheme of things at least, but unfortunately, the Persians pretty swiftly crushed this revolt, and by 494 BCE, it's done. Still, the Ionian Revolt was of great value to the Greeks. It postponed what seemed to be a likely Persian attack on Greece until the Greek mainland states were capable of united action, you know, coming together, as we'll see in a little bit. It also weakened Persian confidence, and it taught the Greeks that, you know, individually, they could fight Persians on land and sea, and it wasn't pointless to revolt, to stand against an invasion should it come. Darius I, right, he's pissed. He's royally pissed. And so he prepares for his vengeance and conquest of Greece. He leaves his son in law he leaves his son-in-law Mardonius behind to consolidate things in Europe. And he's back in and so now Darius is back in Persia, making preparations, getting his pro strats ready, gathering a massive army to quash and squash the Greeks. So, you know, Darius I, he's intent on countering the Greeks, but not a bad guy necessarily. He's like, let me send some envoys to each of these poli, asking them for their submission. So each polis is asked for a jar of dirt and water, signifying their submission, as we've already discussed. And notably, Athens and Sparta rejected this offer and killed those Persian envoys sent to them. In Athens, there was apparently a trial, and then the envoys were thrown into a pit to execute them, which is crazy. Not very nice. While in Sparta, they were just thrown down a well, which is also impolite, to say the least. And this, of course, was unthinkable to the Persians, as it was understood that envoys and ambassadors were protected and merely negotiating or making demands on behalf of their superiors. So... Athens and Sparta, Persian mind, they're going down now. It's done. Pat watch. So Darius intends to invade from the north once again using that massive army. And it's led by Mardonius and it's supported by a massive fleet as well. Now, apparently at this point, Mardonius was able to fully subjugate the Macedonian kingdom and incorporate it into the Persian Empire as a whole. And there are some talks, you know, like, of the Macedonian king serving as a representative of the great king in some of these dealings with the Greek states later. But unfortunately for Mardonius, he is eventually forced to turn back and again postpone the invasion of mainland Greece when his fleet is wrecked in a storm 
And then he's also injured in a raid, which meant, you know, injured in a raid, got to recuperate, fleet destroyed, can't support this massive army and supply it, reprovision and all that. So they turn back to the Persian Empire once more. So Darius learns from this, you know, he's undeterred, still not leading the campaign himself. And he orders a smaller strike, island hopping on a vengeance tour for past rebellions, resistance, or supporting the Ionian revolt. And so this Persian army numbers about 25,000, got a huge fleet with it, burning down a lot of the cities that they conquer, enslaving populations of these cities potentially, including ultimately successfully besieging and destroying Eritrea, repaying them for burning down Sardis, and then enslaving the population there. And at this point, obviously the Athenians know what's up. They'd had a strong inkling their nest, and it's likely that the rest of mainland Greece did as well. And they're like, don't like the looks of this. This should be dicey. But there still wasn't this united plan or united, like even really calls for a united plan to face this Persian threat yet. The Persians did have Hippias with them, who was the last tyrant of Athens before they kicked him out and set up their democracy, which meant that despite sort of mixed reviews on how Athens had wanted to face down the Persian threat in the past, they were now very determined to fight against them because they didn't want this tyrant restored to the throne. To the throne. Estimates are that the Persian army that landed at Marathon, which was actually Hippias' family's land, but this army was around 25,000 strong, while the Athenians were able to put to the field about 10,000 men. A lot of the sources say 10,000 hoplites. I don't believe that was possible. I think it's like a force including hoplites of 10,000 that also included like enslaved people and non-citizens because hoplites, I believe, had to pay for their own armor and stuff. And I don't think they would have had 10,000 rich people in the city. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But I think the army's definitely 10, a 10 to 11,000 strong. I just don't think they were all hoplites. Now, despite being outnumbered over two to one, they did have some advantages over the Persians. For one, their commander-in-chief at the moment had been a general in the Persian Empire, and that was Miltiades. Miltiades? Let's say Miltiades. It seems easier to say. And uh, so, you know, he had a degree of understanding of their knowledge about Persian tactics and their weaknesses. I also saw in some sources that he had previously fought against the Persians, so there is that as well. And now it's also a good point to talk about the Persian Imperial Army, which was composed of archers and light infantry armed with spears and wicker shields. These units were known as Sparabra, which were supported by the very good Median and Persian cavalry, as well as the best troops from the Persian subjected people. So obviously I don't think this 25,000 group strike force would have all of the best troops from all the people as we'll see in these later massive and massive armies that come to the field but the composition of this army with like the mixed units language barriers the reliance on archery and light infantry kind of really played into what the Greeks were best at because they had the heavy armor long spears big shields not a great matchup for the persians now the the cavalry cavalry would tell and was a huge advantage the Persians had against most of their foes. However, the largely rocky and hilly makeup of Greece 
made it difficult to capitalize fully. So likely around August or September in 490 BCE, the Persians land on the plains of Marathon, which were about 25 or 26 miles from the city of Athens itself. More on this later. The Athenians are said to have sent day runners to the Spartans for help, but the Spartans are unable to attend the battle because they have a religious festival going on. Can't fight when there's religious festivals going on. Everybody knows that. So the Athenians advanced their position, you know, extend where they can camp their army, I guess, to within a mile of the enemy. They do this by felling trees and they create obstacles for the cavalry. And then the opportunity comes. After five days of a stalemate in which the two armies kind of face each other with no major engagements. I'm not saying like they stand at arms for five days. I'm just saying like the armies are camped within a mile of each other for five days. Our guy Miltiades is told that the Persians are ready to pack up their ships, probably to try another avenue of attack on the city. Just before dawn, some Ionian deserters report that the cavalry have been loaded onto the ships. Now, this is huge. You know, the Greeks are very fearful of these units. They don't have a lot of cavalry of their own, if any, at this battle specifically. And so Miltiades orders his attack at dawn. He thins out the center and strengthens his wings and orders his army to a charge at the enemy before the cavalry can return to the field. So the Greek wings defeated the Persians, and then they wheeled inward to kind of crush the Persian center, which had driven the Greek center back. So they were able to encircle the forces, which is a big thing we'll see over and over again. The longer spears and heavier armor of their bronze-clad infantrymen prevailed over the Persians with their short spears, witcher shields, and poor armor. At this point, you know, the route is on. And according to Herodotus, the Greeks lost only 192 soldiers, while the Persians lost 6,400. Still not even the majority of the army, but because the majority does escape back to the fleet, which sailed away at once, hoping to surprise Athens and, like, circle back, disembark, get to the city itself. But the Athenian army, you know, force march back to the city, arrive in time to prevent this at which point the Persians depart back to Persia. The next day, after the battle, the Spartan force arrives. And they view the battlefield, they're like, damn, pretty nice, pretty nice. And the wildly different casualties might seem crazy, it might seem maybe a little bit of propaganda going on, and to an extent there might be. Um, But we'll see this again and again this season, particularly when it comes to fights between the Greeks or Macedonians and Persians. And again, it could be propaganda, it could be trying to gas up, you know, ruin the morals of, or ruin the, the morale of the Persians, you know, boost up the morale of the Greeks. It does seem like in ancient warfare that one side would often suffer way more casualties than the other because the battles would devolve into a route at which point the losing force would flee, break rank, and you know, stampede each other, get stabbed in the back as they don't have the shields, and just kind of generally get slaughtered. It is also from the Battle of Marathon that we get our inspiration for the modern marathon race, because according to legend, an Athenian messenger was sent from Marathon to Athens, which like I said was a distance of about 25 miles, and then he announced the Persian defeat before dying of exhaustion. 
which is kind of a wild fletch that the dude died. And now we just have people running that race pretty often, and like a lot of people. Tough. Tough look for that guy. Anyway, like I said, the Persians were forced to return once more to their empire, licking their wounds, but also vowing to return. Fortunately, Darius I died before he could launch his plans, and then a revolt in Egypt ensued, which was not put down until 480 BCE. But Xerxes raises a massive army and a massive fleet from his peoples, and makes ready to bring Greece to heel. The advance is very slow, and the fleet has to provision the army as it goes, which meant that the Greeks had plenty of time to prepare and unite to face this threat. Now, many of the Greek poli do go over in Medes, join the Persians, kind of. But the Athenians and Spartans led the way with Sparta being given command of the general alliance as well as the army and naval aspects of the alliance. And this is despite Athens supplying the bulk of the combined navy at because under the guidance of Themistocles, they had constructed a great fleet of Tyremes, about 200 or so, after discovering a rich supply of silver in their territory. All told, about 30 Poli would unite to face down the Persian threat, and though they voted on decisions, those decisions were binding, and like I said, Sparta was in charge of the military aspects. A funny thing, reading and preparing for this, like the more Athenian favor, yeah, those sources that have favor uh, Athens more or are like biased towards them have a lot of different interpretations of this and say like Athens was leading this unification effort and Themistocles is this brilliant guy and then they'll be like oh yeah and he kind of was forced out of Athens after the war and then defected to the Persian Empire and they <laughs> just kind of leave it at that so Themistocles very interesting look him up if you wanna Anyway, this united Greek force decides to repel the invasion of Greece at the Vale of Tempe, which is a pass between Macedonia and Thessaly. But ultimately, they realize that that wouldn't be viable because the position could easily be, easily be turned, and so they set next to prepare to hold the Persians at Thermopylae, which was originally likely intended, intended to be a delaying tactic and not knowingly a suicide mission. This is where the famous battle of the 300 Spartans comes in. Unfortunately, because it's cool, that uh, story isn't true really at all. There were the 300 Spartans present at the battle, serving as honor guard of their king Leonidas. But I believe yet another religious festival prevented the main Spartan army from joining. It might have been another thing. They might have just been mobilizing and like massing to do the main strike or whatever. But I do believe it was another religious festival. The Spartans did, of course, serve as the vanguard for, their, for this force. But it was really comprised of about 6,000 to 7,000 hoplites from various poli. And the Battle of Thermopylae was also fought in conjunction with naval operations between the Greeks and Persians. The Persians did have a truly massive army, likely between 70,000 and 300,000 strong. So at best, even with the terrain factored in, the Greek army at the Thermopylae was outnumbered 10 to 1. Daunting odds, daunting odds to say the least. Still, they held strong, holding their position and inflicting heavy losses on the Persians for two days. And supposedly Xerxes ordered his best troops to attach, so these losses were very significant to the Persian cause. Ultimately, on the third day, a traitorous Greek led the 10,000 immortals, likely the king's royal guard, and definitely an elite heavy infantry unit to outflank the Greek columns. 
Leonidas, who was leading the Greek hoplites as a whole, ordered the majority away. However, some 700 thespians, not actors, warriors from a polis in Boeotia, which is where Thebes is from, refused to leave, and 400 Thebans and also some Spartan helots were likely there at that last day of the battle. It's said that ultimately, you know, obviously they fought to the death, but the Thebans would surrender to the Persians. That might just be propaganda, unclear. But the calculus behind some of the forces staying behind is that they would be able to delay the Persian army and cavalry, which would ensure the survival of 7,000 battle-tested Greeks, because if they all retreated, the Persian cavalry would mow them down. And so this is when the 300, but still ultimately around actually 1,000 Greeks, made their last stand against incredibly overwhelming odds, putting up a pretty good fight, often fighting for the body of Leonidas himself, who was killed pretty early in the proceedings. But it is said that in his rage, Xerxes desecrated the body of Leonidas, which was pretty rare in the ancient world. Usually, especially in Persia, brave commanders and brave warriors were treated with respect. But at least the propagandized version of Xerxes was famous for his rage, and so had the body beheaded and then crucified. Now, while the land battle at Thermopylae was raging, a naval battle was going on as well. On the first day... Xerxes sent a detachment of 200 ships, which were unseen by the Greeks, to sail around Euboea and close the narrows of the Euripus Strait. During the afternoon, the Greek fleet, having learned about this detachment from a deserter, engaged the main Persian fleet as they were separated, with some success, you know, they inflicted some casualties. And they did intend to sail south that night and destroy the detachment that had circled around the next day, but a storm kept them at Artemisium, and it, and it also wrecked those 200 Persian ships that they were going to destroy anyway, so that's huge. On a second day, news of the Persian disaster was brought to the Greeks by, by a squadron of 53 Athenian ships who were reinforcing the main fleet. On the third day, the Persian fleet attacked at noon, and both sides suffered heavy losses, However, the Persians had more ships, so they could bear the heavy losses. The Greeks really couldn't, and so they realized that they could only succeed in these naval operations in narrower waters. So that evening, when the fall of Thermopylae was known, they withdrew down the Eubaeic Channel and took station, you know, they got ready to fight in the narrow straits of Salamis. Now, the path to Athens was wide open, and the Persians joined by many Greeks from the territories around Attica and north and north of Attica as well, burned the city and its temples to the ground. The city was mostly deserted because the Athenians, on the advice of Themistocles, had decided to entrust their survival to the wooden wall, which they interpreted as their ships after receiving an oracle from Delphi. And they were like, you know, the ships will keep us safe. And so the Greek... United Greek Navy decided to fortify the Isthmus and keep the fleet forward at Salamis. And this decision caused a lot of dissension amongst amongst the ship captains. A lot of them wanted to retreat and fight in a different area. But Themistocles knew that this was wrong, and he leaked the news to Xerxes, who saw that the end of the campaign season was close at hand and wanted to win this war immediately. So he sent 200 ships to cut off the Greek line retreat and then posted the main fleet off the eastern exit of the Straits of Salamis. 
During the night, the Greeks learned of this, and at dawn they moved northward, feigning retreat, drew the main fleet into the strait, and then were able to engage them at close quarters, which was huge because the Persians kept like bumping into each other, didn't really, their massive numbers didn't really work, their ships weren't as wieldy as the Greek ships. So a small contingent under the Corinthian Adamantus sailed to meet the 200 Persian ships, while the remaining 310 Greek ships, which were built for ramming, had room to outmaneuver and just like kind of sink and crash into the Persian ships, which were built for boarding and not necessarily head-to-head collisions. And so the Greeks completely triumphed, Persians fled in confusion, and soon afterward, despite massive Despite massively superior numbers, the morale of the fleet was just crushed, and so they set sail back for Persia. With the destruction of Athens and able to claim mission accomplished at least a little bit, Xerxes wintered back home in Persia, bringing with him the majority of the forces, but leaving a still formidable army in Thessaly under Mardonius. Now, Mardonius was able to get the Greeks to send their armies up to a mountainous area that was more difficult for them to utilize their hoplite tactics in, at least in theories, but suffered defeats at both Plataea and Mysal on the same day. At Plataea, the largest battle of the war, 100,000 Persians fought and were defeated by 40,000 Greeks, including both Athenian and Spartan hoplite. Now Mardonius lost his life on the battlefield, and what remained of the Persian army limped home. The immediate impact of this Greek triumph was another Ionian revolt and the formation of the Delian League, which is what ta- which is what came to be dominated by Athens and formed the Athenian Empire, which eventually leads us to the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans and most other Greek poli left the efforts against Persia after 479 BCE, but the Delian League kept it going, waging campaigns from 479 to 449 BCE to eradicate any Persian presences on the European side of the Hellespont, and they also supported Egyptian uprisings and preserved Ionian independence. And so after taking just really a staggering amount of L's when it came to battling the Greeks directly, and forced by financial reality and constant revolts that made it difficult to launch a war on Greece, after 449 BCE, Artaxerxes and his successors instead adopted a policy of divide and rule for the Greeks. This allowed them to avoid fighting the Greeks themselves, and they constantly attempted to pit Athens and Sparta, as well as other powerful city-states, against one another, regularly, regularly bribing politicians, especially in those democratic states, to achieve their aim. By doing this, they ensured that the Greeks remained distracted by constant internal conflicts, and were unable to turn their attentions to conquering Persia. As we have seen, and will continue to see throughout the course of this season, however, Persia and Greece would remain intertwined and in each other's business until the reign of Alexander the Great and far beyond, though the forms of this would shift. Now, often in Western history, at least, this is, or these series of wars are held up as the power of democracy triumphing over tyrants, or the victory of West over East, the triumph of Western civilization, if you will. But it's so many things, it's not that simple. In a lot of ways, the attempted Persian civilization was much more successful than the Greek civilization. It was much more free, much more compassionate than that of many of the Greek states. It was way, way, way more prosperous, bringing in tons of money, you know, a lot of... Like, the cultures were different, so we can't really be like, oh, but the Greeks were building and telling stories and all this stuff. It's like, what do you think the Persians were doing? Just sitting in 
their houses doing nothing. They had stories. They had art. And the Greek civilizations weren't this beautiful golden flower that they're held up to be, basically, is where I'm getting at. Now, I'm not necessarily the person for this talk, and a lot of historians are biased because of the whole, like, how we've favored Greece throughout our history and a lot of the upbringing and the lack of challenging traditional viewpoints amongst older historians who are still the gatekeepers for a lot of this stuff. I just think it's important for us to always evaluate our sources and the bias of these sources. Like a lot of the things we know about Persia are propaganda. A lot of the things we know about ancient Greece are from the Athenian point of view. And a lot of historians favor Athens, even without taking into account that a lot of the stuff comes from Athenian point of view. And so basically, we just have to be careful to evaluate all of this and be cognizant and aware of these biases as we're ingesting this information. Next time, we will be covering Philip II of Macedon, father to Alexander the Great, and we might even see Alexander himself for a minute or two. This will be the first of at least two episodes on old Phil, so strap in because this is when things really, really, really start to get exciting. As always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast and on Instagram at Podcast. And be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. And also share the show with a friend. Tell them to listen. Tell them it's awesome. Tell them whatever you want, as long as you tell them to listen. Until next time, remember, listener, come back with your shield. We're on it.